over the last few weeks, you, if, if you take a look at the worship folder, you've noticed a theme. Uh, I've been giving you a lot of information on renewal, revival, awakening from a lot of different people and a lot of different perspectives. And so I'm going to let you know there has been meaning and purpose in all of that along the way. We're about to wrap up First John, and uh, we have two more weeks after this week, and I pray and hope that First John has been encouraging to you and strengthening to you and has challenged you. But there is a purpose in all that the renewal and awakening. Uh, immediately following First John, I, I have shared with you that I believe the only hope for this nation uh, to, to rebound from all of the craziness in this world, that hope begins in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe what has to happen, if we're going to see a change in our land, it's going to have to start here. It's going to have to start with us. Um, I have shared with you, and much to the chagrin of some people, that I, perhaps that I do not believe that Washington can save us. That does not mean I don't believe you should do your civic duty, that you should vote. I believe you should. But for this land and this country to change, I think we need to see what has been seen in several different of the centuries this country has been around. They're called Great Awakenings. And uh, an awakening is at heart what we sometimes also call revival. Unfortunately, revival took on a meaning in Southern Baptist life and a lot of evangelicalism where it lost sight of what it means. We have seen revivals as um, attempts to bring the gospel to people. We've seen revivals become evangelistic meetings. Uh, I've talked to you about Vance Havner. He's one of my heroes. Uh, Havner was preaching uh, shortly before his death and into his 80s, uh, just as vitally as when he was in his 20s. A good old Baptist preacher, and I just love his work. Uh, some of his stuff is still available. You can find copies of his his book on uh, the seven churches of uh, Revelation called Repent or Else. You can still get copies of that. But but Vance Havner made a, a, an observation that is not quite correct grammatically, but perfectly correct in its meaning. He said, revivals are not evangelistic endeavors. You cannot be revived if you have not yet first been revived. And that's a grammatic problem, but it's truth. Revival is not about evangelism. It will result in evangelism. It will result in people coming to know Christ. But revivals and awakenings are about the people of God hearing God and coming back to God. And I believe that much of what we see in our, our country has uh, Walter Martin once uh, referred to the growth of cults in this nation. Cults were the unpaid bills of the church. He said, if we had been doing what we were meant to do all along, the cults could not have gotten a groundhold here because we would have presenting, been presenting the truth of the gospel to all who would hear. Well, folks, I believe that much of what we see in the world today in our land, in our world, are unpaid bills of the church. We've lost sight of God. We've lost sight of our purpose. 
So starting in a few weeks, we're going to pull our attention to the idea of awakening. And from the pulpit, I will be uh, addressing several of the different revival movements in Scripture itself. I will be sharing you stories of some of the revival movements throughout history and what God did. I will share with you what I believe needs to happen in our own personal lives. Uh, And I I will just simply, uh, in this little preview, by pointing out that old spiritual song uh, that we should be hearing and listening and singing to nowadays. It's not my brother or my sister, but it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. So over the course of the next few months, we're going to be looking at awakening. And all along the way, I'm going to be asking you to make one solid commitment. We've talked about this before, and we've asked you to do this, but I want you to double down. I would like you to make a commitment that from this day forward, you will be praying intently and purposely for God to move among his people. Uh, If we want to see something amazing happen in our land, If we want to see God make America great, if we want to see God to bless America, then we, his people, must open our hearts and be honest with him. So I'm asking you to make a commitment every day. And I know that's an intimidating commitment. But every day, Send up prayers. God, do what it will take to bring your people back to your side. So that's where we're going to be going. But we're not through with First John yet. And we are in an incredible passage of Scripture. For some of you who are thinking it was a little bit odd to have children's time without children up here, I will remind you, we do have a live feed going out right now uh, on YouTube. And some of our kids who are normally here might be able to be watching there and we didn't want we don't want them to feel that they're forgotten. So that meant that the passage you've heard uh, Angel read today, uh, folks, is it is one of my favorite in the book of First John. And I have a lot of favorites in First John, but let's let's we're going to be taking a look at it. And before we do, I want to ask you a very simple question: Do you ever dive deep enough into your own life? Do you ever look at yourself? in um, a bit of introspection that goes deep enough and real enough that you ultimately seek to answer a question, what's my purpose? Why am I here? What's going on with my life? Now, for some of you, at some point in life, you made a decision, my purpose, I want to become the absolute best in my career field that I can possibly be. Some of you said, I want to rear my children from childhood to a a responsible adulthood, and I'm going to pour my life into my kids. Some of you, uh, other relationships you have said, uh, you have had a lot of different purposes that have tried to define who you are. I want to be the best that I can be, whatever that means. Now, some of you may, the moment I raise this question, what's my purpose, you may have tried to play it safe, and you have answered for those of you who are familiar enough with some of historical statements of faith, that my purpose is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Well, if that's truly your purpose, that's great. But in the day in and day out of your life, 
Where do you pour your heart? What is your purpose? Now, there's a reason behind that asking me, me asking you that question today, because in today's text, the Apostle John is actually going to answer his, what is his purpose for writing this book. Now, he's already given us a couple of clues. He's already made a couple of, of purpose statements in the very first chapter. Verse 4, he said, we write this to make our joy complete. And in chapter 2, verse 1, he said, I write this to you so that you will not sin. You won't live a lifestyle of sin. So those are two purposes of John. But in today's text, he is going to give the main reason he wrote this book. Under this statement, everything that John has said is the foundation work. John is going to tell his readers today that his purpose, and I'm going to go ahead and give you one of the verses we'll be looking at. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. John, the apostle, wrote that I want you to be confident of eternal life. I want you to know that you can know that you have eternal life. Now, we shouldn't be surprised that eternal life is a major purpose of John. It finds its way throughout this book. Everywhere you look, we're hearing about this. It's been pointed out that the concept of life or eternal life, and generally speaking, when John uses the word life in this letter, he's talking about eternal life. It dominates the whole thought of 1 John. It began, the letter begins with a statement about for, uh, eternal life. In John chapter 1, verse 2, it will end with a statement about eternal life. In chapter 5, verse 20, and everywhere in between, eternal life is being spoken about more and more in different ways and different facets. Robert Law, way back in 1909, in a series of lectures, I made a statement that the idea of eternal life, he says about it, its predominance is complete. It is the center to which every idea in the epistle is more or less directly related. Everything about this letter is pointing to the reality of eternal life for those who have faith in Christ. John wrote his central purpose and writing to these faithful believers was that they would know. And literally, he says, I want you to go on knowing that you have eternal life. And he says, I want you to know that you literally, continually have eternal life. Now, Let's make something one abundantly clear. God alone is eternal. Uh, our immortality is a gift from God. We are not immortal. And uh, the, the concept of the immortal soul is not found in Scripture in and of itself. My sister Debbie, way back when she was a little thing, uh, she shared with us at one point as she was growing up that she she pictured, she believed that before mom and dad had her, she was in heaven picking out her parents. And she chose 
Fred and Jean Nance. Now, what my sister didn't know, that at the age of about six or seven, she was a full-blown heretic. Uh, there was a gentleman who believed that we are immortal, and we're not. It's very clear our eternal life is a gift from God. It is not something inherent in us. And since God alone is eternal, whenever we hear about eternal life, it is shaped and it is shaded by the eternal God. I want to share with you, again, I've had the opportunity in First John to share with you some of the most beautiful statements made in church history, and I want to share another one with you from the pen of William Barclay. Folks, this is just an amazing statement. In God, there is peace, and therefore eternal life means serenity. It means a life liberated from the fears which hound the human situation. In God, there is power, and therefore eternal life means the defeat of frustration. It means a life filled with the power of God, and therefore victorious over every circumstance. In God, there is holiness, and therefore eternal life means the defeat of sin. It means a life clad with the purity of God and armed with the against the soiling infections of the world. In God, there is love. And therefore, eternal life means the end of bitterness and hatred. It means a life which has the love of God in its heart and the undefeatable love of man in all the feelings and all its actions. In God, there is life, and therefore, eternal life means the defeat of death. It means a life which is indestructible because it has in it the indestructibility of God himself. And that is eternal life, folks. That's what John says we possess. Those who have faith in God, we possess that kind of life. And what John said for his readers is true for us. I'm here today to tell you we can know that we have eternal life. How do we know it? Well, let's take a look at what John says. 1 John 5, 11 through 13, absolutely an amazing passage of Scripture. Hear the word of the Lord. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Notice he didn't say so that you may hope, so that you may wish, so that you may desire that you have eternal life. He says, I'm writing this so that you know. In this text, John the Apostle declared, Assurance of eternal life was possible. And this isn't wishful thinking. I believe with everything in me, we can know that we have eternal life. And you may be thinking now, wait a minute, Danny. That's a little bit bold, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's kind of, I mean, that's a, a pretty outlandish statement. We can know. If you've ever asked somebody, do you know that you have eternal life? Do you know that you're saved? One of the most common answers is, I hope so. I think so. I, I, I believe that I, I may have eternal life. But John is saying we can know it. And you may be wanting to say, just how can we know that we have eternal life? That sounds a little bit arrogant. 
That sounds a little bit prideful. Well, not when you understand what eternal life is about. How can we know? We're going to take a look at observations that John has made in his letter. Observations that point out the reality. Eternal life is something we can be certain about. So let's jump into it. And the very first thing he says, and people, please get hold of this. Eternal life is a gift from God. It is a gift from God. And it's a gift that has already been given. Notice when John writes about this, that John assured his readers that they had already, they had experienced eternal life already. You have been given. It was a divine gift, a gift from God himself. God gave them eternal life. And so it was not a reward or merit. And this is where we most often mess up. We think we get eternal life if we're good enough. If we've lived a good life, if we've lived a, a, a meaningful life, we have eternal life. No. Now, I'm not saying the life you live is irrelevant. Uh, God saved you so that you would be his child. But you don't earn it. John was saying their salvation had never been the result of their actions. So John told his readers, in the light of the things he has written, and I believe when he says, I have written these things, he's not just talking about the verses that immediately precede this. I think he's talking about the whole book. I've written everything I've written to you so that you will not be shaken by false teachers that are saying, the only way you will have eternal life The only way you will have meaning is if you follow our path. Throughout the letter, John gave a series of tests. He gave a series of tests that would indicate, do you really know God? Listen to what those tests were. 1 John 1, uh, 2, 29. Everyone who does what is right has been born of him. No one, uh, in 39, no one who is born of God will continue to sin, live a sinful lifestyle. Uh, 3.14, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. And 4.7, dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. And then in 5.4, he says, everyone born of God overcomes the world. And when John gave all of those, what he was going to let his readers know at this point I am confident you have passed all of those tests by the grace of God. And that's the important part of this. You're not just a great bunch of people, therefore God loves you. God loves you and is changing you into a great bunch of people. God loves you and is making you into something brand new. And God's grace has come to give you life. There was one certain thing they had in this life And John is saying, you have received the gift of eternal life. And when he says God gave you, the tense of that word suggests sometime in the past, at a decisive moment in time, God spoke to your life and you were given. You have received the gift. And the key then to understanding eternal life The key to assurance is in knowing eternal life 
is not dependent on us. I don't know about you, but when I discovered this, this is an amen moment. This is an amazing moment in in our lives. We are not responsible. The truth is a lot of people have difficulty with doubt over their salvation. You may have on many occasions wondered. You've listened to that little voice. A real Christian wouldn't laugh like that. And we struggle with the doubt. Curtis Vaughn reminds us very clearly the text implies you may be a believer and have doubt. You may be a believer and uncertain of your eternal life. How does the text imply that? Because John felt the need to say, I'm writing so that you can know. There were apparently some of his readers who were struggling with doubt. A person can honestly and truly be saved and yet not certain of it. What we need to understand, there's a difference between salvation and the assurance of salvation. Every believer is saved. But every believer doesn't have assurance. So when you come across somebody who's having doubts, don't berate them. Don't call them names. Don't act like they're some horrible, weak, carnal Christian. Instead, bring encouragement to them and strength to them. Remind them the things that you have embraced that help you to know. You see, our problem, we accept the idea we have been saved by grace through faith, and that not of ourselves, it is a gift of God not of works, lest any man should boast. Amen. And then we get saved and we think, okay, now we've got to work really hard. Now we've got to keep it and we've got to work really hard. It's as if we believe, I am saved by grace, but now here it comes. But I want you to remember and understand this. The test that God gave those believers was not saying, These are the tests you have to pass so that you can earn salvation. What John is quite literally saying, these are the things that give evidence that you already are saved. These are the proofs in your life. If you're really saved, then you will love one another. If you're really saved, you'll begin having victory over sin. If you're really saved, and on and on and on, it's evidence. Eternal life is not the outcome of our working hard. It's not the outcome of our getting the things right. Eternal life is the outcome of a gracious God who sent the one and only Son to die for us and offer us what we couldn't give ourselves. So for those who struggle, and if today you're struggling with this, as gently as I know how, I'm telling you that God has said in His Word, you can know You can know you have eternal life. You can trust him because you have put yourself in his hands. You have committed yourself into his grace. And you have eternal life. When Sir James Simpson, who discovered chloroform, was on his deathbed, a friend asked him, well, what do you expect? What are your speculations about what happens next? 
and it's recorded that Simpson said, speculations, I have no speculations, for I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Simpson said, I know I'm going into the hands of my God. So, let's celebrate joyfully the gracious gift of eternal life. I am so ecstatically joyful that my salvation is not dependent on Danny Nance. Because if it were dependent on me, I would have no hope. Because I cannot achieve salvation. We can celebrate because God has given us life, and we can encourage each other. When the struggle comes, when the doubt comes, we can encourage one another. You can know you have eternal life. Have you trusted in the Son? Do you believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? You can know you have eternal life. Why? Because, my friends, eternal life is centered in the Son of God. It is centered in the Son of God, in the one we call Jesus the Christ. And John makes this statement boldly. He makes it without any hesitation. John stated clearly that eternal life was found only in the Son, wrapped up in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Verse 11 is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And the point John stressed, that eternal life is only obtainable in the Son. God was saying, last week I told you I would tell you what God's testimony was. This is God's testimony. His Son is the only means by which people can come to faith. Why Jesus only? Because he is the one who atoned for our sins. He is the one who paid the price for the debt of sin. He died for us. Why Jesus only? Because only Jesus came from God. He is God in flesh. He was God, very God, taking on the human form just like us. He lived a human life, experiencing all the struggles and even all the temptations that we have. God's words were not well received in his day. The Romans were very religious people, and they wanted you to be religious. They just didn't care what you believed. The only thing they were concerned about is you didn't tell other people mine is the only way because they felt that would cause trouble. And folks, in our current situation, we too find ourselves in a situation where it's not acceptable. Daniel Aiken it's talking about, talked about the uh, theological context in which you and I are living. John would be called, and not in a good way, it would not be meant as a compliment, John would be called a theological exclusivist. No one wants us to say Jesus is the only way. But folks, all roads do not lead to God. John was addressing a kind of way of looking at life and religion like a buffet. If you like a little bit of this, get it. If you like this over here, get it and just pick and choose and make yourself your own religion. 
So the idea that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life is objectable in our, in our century as well as John's. And our world is filled with many religions. And more and more in this pluralistic society we live in, you and I are bumping across people who believe very different things than we do. Religious pluralism is a reality we cannot ignore. Now, I need you to hear me carefully. A moment of Baptist history. From the moment Baptists first showed up on this planet, where you can say that was a Baptist, we have fought for complete and total freedom of religion for all people. And I can take you historically through our history, and I can point out statements like, I will fight for a man's belief in one God, in two gods, in many gods, or no God. We fought for religious freedom for a very easy understanding. One, we believe that God could speak to the human heart and therefore we can't force it. But two, if I steal away someone else's freedom, someone will eventually steal mine. And when we first showed up, folks, we were the ones going to jail for our faith. We were the ones being imprisoned. Read John Bunyan's The Pilgrim Progress and read about his life. Thomas Helwes wrote a little book and in the flyleaf told the king of England, we will follow you, we will believe you, but you are not a god. And you cannot tell us what we must believe. Guess where Helwes spent the rest of his life? In a British prison. So we have fought for freedom. I remember when I was about 17 years old, I heard a news report that two street preachers were arrested in Virginia for preaching the gospel. And I was outraged. This was on a Christian TV program. I was absolutely outraged. Arrested for preaching the gospel in Virginia? No. And it turned out it was no. They weren't arrested for preaching the gospel. They were arrested because they, on the street, they actually pinned a man against a wall and wouldn't let him leave. And were preaching the gospel and forcing him to listen. They were arrested for false imprisonment. Not that they were preaching. Folks, I can't make somebody believe me. I can't force them to. We need to stand against the polite but erroneous belief that all religious roads lead to God. We must not water down the good news. But we also need to be sure that when we speak, we speak in the love of Christ. Because it was Christ who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So, Let's us boldly proclaim the truth about the source of eternal life. We need to stand firm that we truly believe Christ is the way to life. We need to understand that. Without force, without harshness, without denying the right of religious freedom. We need to share in love the reality that God has moved and God has done something amazing in Christ and let me tell you about it. We do this knowing when I stand up and say Jesus is the way, there are going to be a lot of people who will turn away. But there will be some 
will embrace what Christ has done. And so it is only in Jesus we have hope of salvation. And the final observation that John makes, eternal life becomes a reality through trust in the Son. Eternal life becomes a reality through trusting in Jesus. And I use that word very specifically because believe is such a weak word. Uh, I believe two plus two is is four, but that is not going to bring me eternal life and it is not going to make an eternal difference in who I am. I trust in Jesus. I commit myself into his hands. I give myself into his his arms. You see, the Apostle John said there were only two possible reactions concerning Jesus and the truth that is in Christ. John wrote, you either have the Son or you do not have the Son. And when he says, he who has the Son, it talks about someone who has fellowship with Christ, who is walking with Christ, who is belongs to Christ, and who possesses Christ in their life. The Son who said, I am the life. Because of faith in the God's Son, the believer in the Son are now inseparable. So to possess the Son is to possess life in all of its fullness. And holding on to the biblical faith means that I possess Christ as well as life with the Father. Ultimately, what matters? What is my relationship to Jesus Christ? Is he in my life if I committed myself to him or not? Now, the other side of that coin is true. If I do not have the Son, I don't have life. The person who refuses to acknowledge Christ as the Son of God will not possess life, and there is no middle ground for God. Life and the Son go together. It is impossible to have the Son without life. It is possible, impossible to have life without the Son. So, when we're struggling with this question about whether or not I truly am a child of God, whether or not I, I have faith, whether or not I have eternal life, we need to ask ourselves the question, do we have the Son or not? Do we have the Son or not? Associate Pastor Steve Yesick of a church in Crystal Lake, Illinois. He is also a life coach and has a, a, a thriving career in terms of counselor, family counseling. Lost his sister Judy after a five-year battle with cancer. Steve describes his sister in her 44 years of life before Christ as a party girl. She lived life hard. She lived life to extreme, she was a big dreamer, and she was self-contented in the life that she lived. She was the kind of person, though, everybody tended to love because she exuded life. She exuded excitement. But every time Steve would try to tell Judy about Jesus, she'd laugh him off. She had no place for Christ in her life. And then, at the age of 44, her world fall, fell apart. She discovered she had a massive cancer, breast cancer. At the same time, she discovered her husband had cancer. And then on top of that, her husband came to her and said, I'm leaving you. I don't love you anymore. 
He'd been having an affair. So her health has been taken away. The health of the man she loved had been taken away. Then he was taken away by another woman, and her life was in shambles. And it was at that moment in time, Judy finally understood she needed Jesus. And so, she put her trust in the Christ that her brother had been telling her about for years. From that time into her death, Jesus and his word and purpose became her priority. With the same kind of gusto she had lived the party life she was now living for Jesus Christ. She now approached a new life in Christ. And her greatest aim was winning others to Jesus. She boldly shared her faith as she was undergoing surgery after surgery, praying for a miraculous healing from, for her body that never came. But ultimately, she came to see the most important thing is that other people came to faith. So she was sharing her faith with everybody that she could. Her family, her friends, she would talk about Jesus. Ten days before her death, she talked herself out of the hospital so she could be baptized and publicly profess her faith in Jesus Christ. And Judy invited everyone she knew to come to her baptism service. And under the Spirit's anointing, she gave her testimony. And on that day, her 84-year-old father accepted Christ and was baptized. Her ex-husband accepted Christ. A number of friends, nieces, a college roommate who is into New Age, a lot of people gave their lives to Christ through her testimony. And then on the day of her funeral, her brother Steve read the message that she had written for her own funeral. And on that day, a hundred more people came to faith. Judy lived her life for years not having Christ. And she was content in that lifestyle until the circumstances of her life forced her to look at the one she had so offhandedly rejected. When she came to the place of trusting, more people in her death came to faith than in the lives of a lot of people spending their life for Christ. We need to ask, have we heard the testimony? Have we received in faith? Have we trusted Jesus? So let us learn to rest our hearts in the promise of God's gift. This gift of eternal life through trust in Jesus Christ. Our doubts may arrest our spiritual growth. They may arrest our joy. They may cripple our usefulness, but they do not alter the fact if we have trusted, we are saved. So may God help us to know that and share that and believe that. When we learn this, we can walk in the fullness that life has in Christ. We can learn what it means to be confident of eternal life. Charles Spurgeon, the prince of the preachers I've mentioned a number of times, was asked by a friend, do you know you're saved? How do you know you're saved? And he replied, Jesus promised that if I would believe in him, he would save me. I have trusted in him. 
a gentleman keeps his word. And my Savior is a gentleman. Folks, we can take God at his word. We can take his, at his word concerning eternal life. Remember that his word declares eternal life is a gift, not something we earn. His word declares that eternal life must be centered in Jesus Christ if it is real. And his word declares that only trusting in Jesus ultimately leads us to salvation. If you've taken God at his word, you can be confident of eternal life. So we have a call to live in that confidence. Why is that important? Again, we want our lives to be as effective for Jesus as they can be. We want to have the peace in knowing we are in his hands. We want the joy that comes when this is settled. So I'm, I'm encouraging you. I'm, I'm calling on you. If you are a person with doubt, if you are a person with struggle, take a look at this text and realize if your trust is in Christ, you belong to God. And share that. Share that. This text is not an evangelistic text. In the Gospel of John, when John gave his reason for writing the Gospel, he said, I'm writing to you all these things to you so that you may believe in the name of the Son of God. He's writing this to a group of believers. Those of you who believe in the name of the Son of God know that you have eternal life. Folks, I'm telling you. Know that you have eternal life. Know that you are in the hands of God. And let that knowledge give you courage and strength and hope and life. Ask God to fill you with the truths. Ask God to just grab hold of your heart. So that you can walk in the power and the grace of our Lord. So that you can tell others, I have found the way to God. And his name is Jesus Christ. Let me tell you about it. Folks. There is so much uncertainty in this world. There's so much struggle and fear and confusion. But for those of us who know Christ, we can stand on this certainty. Jesus made a statement once. If you hear my words and you do them, if you live for me, you'll be like a man who built his house on a foundation. And the storms come and the rains fall and your life will stand. Folks, in the world of COVID-19, in the world of a degree of hatred we haven't seen in a long time, in a world of frustration and fear, 
in a world of such uncertainty. In Jesus Christ, we can stand. I invite you to bow your heads and eyes before the Lord. With no one looking around, if you are one who struggles with doubt, I want to pray for you. Would you just slip your hand up? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Now, folks, for those of you who have a certainty, will you be an encourager? Will you say, I am not going to put someone down for their doubts. I'm not going to criticize them. Instead, I will make it one of my life's goals to encourage others. If you know that you have eternal life, would you make a commitment today in sharing that in encouragement and strength? If you would do that kind of commitment, would you raise your hands? Thank you. Thank you. 